Greetings to all you out there in podcast land. This is Adam Voigt, and you're listening to The Aristotle Project. The Aristotle Project works to bring back ancient wisdom for the modern world. We do have original thoughts and our own philosophy separate from Aristotle, but unless you understood Aristotle, you wouldn't understand anything we have to say that's original. So... We created this so that you could get, catch up with us someday. But along the way, Aristotle is quite a roller coaster ride. So buckle up and we're on our way. What is knowledge? What is the highest knowledge? Can the highest knowledge be gained from observation of nature? Can it be gained from mathematics? Can we find it in religious myths? What is ultimately real? What is substantially real? These are the questions asked by Aristotle in the Book of Books, Book Alpha of the Metaphysics. And our current series deals with this very short but very difficult work. I hope you'll enjoy the Aristotle Project. Okay, now we're back for podcast episode four of the uh, Aristotle Project, and this is going to be about Pythagoras. So Pythagoras is like a really weird, really, really weird thinker when you go back to him. And he highlights something that we don't normally think about, which is What's the relation between math and physics? That's a really weird thing. Because we just assume that math is like the language of nature, as Galileo said. So Pythagoras believed that as well. But uh, now we're going to investigate, well, how is that so? And uh, Aristotle is going to look into it. Okay, so we've already mentioned a little bit. But what, the, what we uh, talked about before was the RK. Now, do you remember what the RK was, Ada? The RK was like, oh, geez. No. Was what? I remember it meant like first in some way. So like some people would call like the king the RK or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's the ruler. And what else is an RK? I forgot. Oh, that's fine. Uh, an RK is like the first of anything. Adam could be the RK of uh, the human race. Mm-hmm. and uh, Or God could be the RK of the human race. Or the process of evolution could be the RK of the human race. Or the very first creature that came to life back in the very beginning, that's the RK of life too. The first thing. So many things that... We take for granted, like, the structure of DNA and uh, very arbitrary features of organic molecules all trace their origin back to that RK, that first creature. But that's not the only meaning of RK. There's principles. Principles in our sense of the word, uh, like uh, rules that things tend to follow just of their own nature without being forced to, you know. And then there's... The principles of some skill or, you know, art, right? 
And these are things that you take natural materials and you force them to follow these certain rules as part of your skill. You force, you know, earth to become metal. You force metal to become a car. Those are principles, right? So it's a related set of things. But when we're talking about the early thinkers, the RK, the RK with a capital A, was the fundamental form of matter. Like what we're looking for today was the fundamental uh, particles, right? Over at CERN and the big super collider, they're looking for the fundamental particles, the smallest particles that they could smash matter into. And uh, by bringing it 99% of the speed of light and hitting each other, and what comes out is the RK. That's what they're looking for. And so back in the day, people were looking for the RK too. And, but mostly they were just thinking, you know, what is the smallest particle? What types of matter are there? And they were just thinking about matter in the normal sense. But the Pythagoreans thought about matter in a very abnormal sense. And their way of thinking about matter is kind of similar to what many physicists today use. They use math. And so, for example, there was a, a famous mathematician or a mathematical physicist who predicted the existence of antimatter simply from mathematics. And, and I think so many decades later, they actually proved that there was an antiparticle to like a proton or stuff like that. So that's kind of like the last thing that I would expect, that there would be an antimatter, right? But yet, just from math, someone predicted it. And uh, and it was true. I don't know how they proved that to be true. I mean, to me, that's just beyond my comprehension. But back in ancient times, people used math for similar feats of uh, prediction. And it seemed miraculous to people, as if it were magic. And it still seems that way to people. So the first group of people to try to really focus on how math could be so awesomely useful were the Pythagoreans. Now the Pythagoreans were kind of like a, uh, a cult or like a religion from our perspective. They had a guru whose name was Pythagoras and he worked miracles of various kinds, healing people and foretelling the future and whatever. And he told people to uh, be vegetarians and to not eat beans and to do various other little rules, which seemed weird to everyone else except for the Pythagoreans. And they thought that the key to becoming one with uh, the ultimate good of the universe was to do lots of math and to study math. So they thought that numbers were the elements of things. So the elements of things are kind of like the RK. Uh, the, the RK or the principles and elements are not necessarily the same thing, uh, but elements are one main type of principle. So if everything's made of water, then you know water is the fundamental element of all things. Little bits of water are the elements, and the principle, the elements are also a principle. So they're kind of similar. So they thought that numbers resemble natural things, you know, and but then they also thought that numbers were the primary elements of things of nature. So, for example, like 
if you have 2 plus 2 equals 4, that has a certain formal quality to it that resembles what happens if you have $2 and someone else gives you $2 and then you count how many dollars you end up with. That kind of resembles. Like, how do you think it, 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 the relationship between that, those two things are, right? So, like, if you have $2 and someone gives you $2 and then you end up having so many dollars, what's the relationship between that and the addition problem of 2 plus 2 equals 4? See, that's an interesting thing. Like, there's many ways you could talk about it. And I don't know if people have any one hard and fast idea on, like, or answer that everyone can accept about what they're... Um, it could just be, like, in writing, like, describing something. Well, that's true. It could be a description, which means your words, re in, in one sense, they resemble that, right? Mm -hmm. That's one way. Uh, there's two words. One is you can resemble it or it can imitate it. So does that mean that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is an imitation of what happens when you get two more dollars than what you already had? Well, it's like what happens. Or is it the opposite direction? Is your getting two more dollars an imitation of the original uh, addition problem? Well, I don't think they're like... Like, if you're saying, like, you got two, like, you got two dollars and then you got another two dollars and then you're writing that down, I think the... Like, it depends what happened first, I guess? Yeah, yeah. You'd think whatever happened first would be the real thing, and then the imitation of the real thing would be what happened second in order of time, right? That's, uh, that's a very uh, reasonable assumption. So what happened first was 2 plus 2 equals 4, right? Mm -hmm. That's the original thing. And then somehow, when you have two things of any kind, you know, whether they're cats or dollars or, you know, books or whatever, and someone gives you two more of that, then the principle of what happens then, or the, the cause of what happens in that instance, is the original problem of 2 plus 2 equals 4. And then somehow that event was brought about by the original thing, which is always eternally the same in heaven or God's mind or somewhere like that, wherever numbers are, I don't know, but like wherever they are, I mean, numbers could actually be right here, you know, within matter, you know, they could be just, they could be in the center of the like earth. Abstract, well, I don't know. It's hard to tell what the Pythagoreans thought about number. And we'll talk a lot about this, but so one thing, if you're saying that numbers resemble things of nature, well, then the number doesn't have to be in the things of nature. It seems apart from it. But then if you're saying that numbers are the primary elements of things of nature, well, then the elements are in the things that they cause, right? Like if you're made of water, then the water has to be in you. It's not, you know, some idea of water in God's mm -hmm. mind, right? The water has to be right there in you. And that's your water, right? And it's nowhere else. So if numbers are the elements of things, then the numbers are in the things themselves, and they're not apart from it. Right? 
So if the number is in you getting two more books... Wait, so are there just like a bunch of ones or something? That's a, that's a good question. Actually, Aristotle writes about ten pages on whether there's just a bunch of ones and how how the ones relate to each other. <laughs> are they the same one or are they different ones? Mm -hmm. And if they're different ones, how come they're all just one? You know, so like, we'll get to that later, but uh, that's a good question. But like, so there's two interpretations that the Pythagoreans seem to have had that differ and are contradictory. One is that there's a resemblance or imitation, and another is that they're elements. So why would you think numbers would be the elements of things? So let's say a good example of that is if you look at this Lego piece, mm -hmm. right? So this Lego piece has is made of matter mm -hmm. and it has a certain length mm -hmm. and it has a certain length on each side and then these two lengths differ by a certain angle 90 degrees and these two lengths differ by another angle 90 degrees and then it has so many knobs the knobs are a certain size so in a sense those dimensions which limit and constrain the size of this hunk of matter are in the thing itself. Like before, I, I forget who invented Legos, but before that Danish guy invented Legos, you know, or let's say he invented it, but it was just in his mind. Well, then the numbers were in his mind, but they were not yet in the plastic. Okay, but then he actually decided, okay, we're going to make the first Lego block. So then he takes those numbers and then he makes sure that each of these piece dimensions is actually in this block. So then the numbers go from his mind and he puts them right there. And I toss it onto the bed. So what happened to the numbers? Well, the numbers are still in his mind, right? But yet, somehow they... The what? But they're also somehow in the Lego brick. Yeah, somehow they got into this Lego brick. That's weird. So, like, uh, anyway, so how that happened is the biggest question of Greek philosophy. Like, what happens when you make a Lego brick or that table? Each of these pieces of matter is, you know, at once... One time, these pieces of wood were like a big tree. So then we cut them into certain shapes and sizes. And those shapes and sizes were conceived in the mind of somebody of skill, like an engineer or some designer or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And then they attached them together. And they, they had like, okay, we want a table so long and so tall. So that's what we're going to do. So they put those dimensions, they put numbers into the matter. And that's what made the table. So, in a sense, like the earlier people, they thought that the essence of the table would be wood, right? Mm -hmm. Like what it's made of. Yeah. But now we're getting to another kind of essence where the matter isn't so important. Like... It's the form? Yeah, it's the form. So, like, the real table is what was added to the matter in order to make a table. Because the matter was there before. You know, if you looked at the, the matter that this wood 
wanted to take just on its own before somebody added numbers to it, you would get a tree. That would be the tree. So in a sense, the natural form of that wood is a tree. But then someone destroyed the tree and made a table out of it. So the essence of the table is not in the matter. The matter would be something else if you just left it to itself. But this matter was given a, given a new essence by the artist or the skilled worker. And that was the length, height, width, and the shape, which you can use numbers to define the shape of this, uh, this uh, table. And then you could put those numbers into a 3D printer. And that 3D printer would just print out a table. It would be plastic, but it wouldn't be wood. It would be plastic. But if you could 3D print wood, which, you know, is in theory possible, like a, you can 3D print bone, which they can do that in the lab. They mm -hmm. 3D print, you know, yeah. genetically engineered bones and hearts and skin for people. So you could actually make this table 3D printed out, and it could be made of bone. It could be made of plastic. It could be made of metal. You know, but in a sense, that would be the same table, you know. And they do that for dinosaur skulls, too. You know, they'll 3D print out a copy of a dinosaur skull. And, you know, you Wait, could... like in plastic, right? Yeah. I mean, you could do it in bone if it's you wanted. Cool. Yeah, you could do it in bone. But, like, the thing is, like, for example, Sue, the famous dinosaur skull of Sue, you know, probably the most awesome fossil ever found. You could take the form of that skull and 3D print it out and order it through the mail. And it would cost a few hundred bucks, maybe a thousand bucks even. And you would have the skull of Sue, right? But obviously, it wouldn't be the original skull of Sue, but it would be a copy of it. And what that would have would be the... Well, that would be different. Yeah. Like, just because you have an ear that looks like my ear, I don't know, mm -hmm. um, doesn't mean, like, it's my ear because I don't... Like, I didn't use it for, like, my whole life. And That's true. It's not... Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, there's, like, a difference. And plus, we could take a copy, an external copy of your ear, and form my cells into the same shape. Or we could take the DNA from your ear and genetically engineer and grow an exact copy of your ear in the lab and then stick it on. Those are two different ways in which you can have a copy, the form of your ear. But they're two kind of different. One is less natural than the other, but both of them are kind of artificial, you know? So now we're getting into what Pythagoras thought was the real reality of things. And this real reality we'll call substance. This is the biggest word in Aristotle is substance. So the other people thought that matter was the substance of things. But Pythagoras is the first person to say that there's something else that's the substance of things. And that is something having to do with numbers. So it's kind of numbers, but we've already hinted at what the substance of things is. And so what he, uh, what he really said was he went back to someone else called Anaximander. That was before Pythagoras. So Anaximander said that there were two fundamental things in the universe, and everything's made out of that. So this is kind of like the RK for these other material things. But what he said was he said there were two things. One is the unlimited, 
And that's the primal thing. Everything's made out of the unlimited. And then things are made out of the unlimited by limiting them. You limit what was unlimited and that turns it into a particular thing. Mm -hmm. So whatever the original stuff was, whether it's water or, you know, fire or whatever, you're taking that and then you're limiting it. So when you make a table, you take that matter and then you limit it to like this tall, this long, that wide. And then boom, by limiting that original material, you create the table. So the substance of the table itself is the limitation placed on it, the limitation on the original unlimited stuff. So, for example, if you were just a big blob, if I took a cell from you and then genetically engineered a big blob, then that wouldn't be you. But if I limited that blob so that it expressed itself in one particular form of someone just like you who behaved like you and not just randomly, you know, who thought like you and not just like some random person from the whole so U.S. Would just have all my memories somehow? Yeah, that would be pretty unlikely because that's a pretty, it's pretty unlikely that any human being would be limited to act just like another human being, right? But they all act in a very limited way, you know? They, I mean, they have a lot of freedom, but yet there's a lot of things that you just don't think a person would do. And, and this is why, you know, if you hear that someone you know did something, you can get a good idea, oh, no, I don't think they would do that, you know. And the longer you know them, the, uh, less likely, the more likely you are to be correct on that, because that's just not a thing they would do, you know. But at the same time, people do make pretty weird uh, choices and um, you know it's hard to predict what people will do in some situations but in, in another sense the key thing the essence of any particular thing is the way that it's limited and that means it follows a certain natural motion of its own accord or of its own nature mm -hmm. and so the nature of a thing limits it to something in way mode of behavior or appearance or something and so this is what Anaximander who is actually we now think he was the very first philosopher so um, he came after Thales and he said that there was the RK was the unlimited which is aperon unlimited it has no particular qualities it has no particular shape it's just random stuff and he didn't even, he didn't say it was water, fire, air, whatever. In a sense, water is limited. Fire is limited. It's not cold. You know, he just, but he believed that whatever the original stuff was, it was unlimited. And you couldn't actually say much about it because it's just so unlimited. If you can specify what it's like and that it's not like something else, then it's already limited. And so something had to take that unlimited RK, and then limit it, and then make particular things out of it.
So, after Anaximander, other people had ideas on what the limitation was. What caused limits to occur? And this, you know, you, you would have had to have get into the agent cause, you know, the agent cause taking the matter and then forming it, right? But uh, Pythagoras didn't go that way. He thought in terms of number. When you make a thing, you measure out how much of that, you start with this stuff, which is unlimited or bigger than what you want to make, right? Mm -hmm. It has to be bigger unless you're making little building blocks and then you're stacking it together. But uh, if, like say, you're starting out with a big tree, then you're carving the tree down to this, you're limiting the original tree into this smaller item. But even if you're uh, taking smaller building blocks like bricks and you're making something bigger, when you design that building, you're limiting, you're going to draw it on a sheet of paper. And so let's say this is the unlimited. And then you say, okay, well, I want it to be this long right here. I want it to be 20 feet long, 10 feet high. That's limiting things. And then the third dimension. Okay, well, I want it to be another 10 feet long that way. That's another limitation. So it could have been 100 feet. So the essence of what whatever I'm building here, this room or this house, is the limits that I'm imposing on what was there before. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, but what are the limits? So, Pythagoras looked into, tried to think, what is the essence of the limits? What are the natural limits? And so, the natural limits for him were number. So, the essence of this table is the length of this, these dimensions of these pieces of wood, mm -hmm. right? So that, to him, was the limit. And this is added to uh, Anaximander, right? So he's adding to what Anaximander said and just building on it. And so he thought that numbers were the essences of things and that the... So numbers are not the... well. Numbers are the elements of things. It's not the RK. So the RK is the ultimate one principle. So he thought there was an ultimate one principle, but we're not going to talk about what that was. It's the RK of numbers. But then once you figure out what the RK of numbers is, which is hard to do, and even we'll, Aristotle has a lot of written on that. But if you look at numbers as the elements of things, as what goes into making this table a table or a human a human, then you look at, well, how does it do that? And one way in which he thought he discovered something was this. Now, if you listen to this. Okay, so like, or this. So that sounds like one sound. It's pretty unified, right? Like that. So let's say that. That's pretty unified. What about this sound? They sound like different sounds, right? But you hear them as one thing. And this one. So I could never... 
I can't pick out the individual notes in either of those. Can you hear the individual notes? I don't. I'm a musician. Yeah, so that's true. I'm not much of a musician. I don't have a good ear, even though I play and sing. I don't really have musical science, right? Like a real musician would have. So the difference between these two, a real musician would see the elements that go to make up these chords. Those are chords. Each of these has three notes, and they differ by one note. So this is a major G major, like that. And then if you lower the third degree by one half step, you get a G minor. So the thing is, when you hear those, you just hear that they're different. And that's a primitive fact that these two, unless you have the science of music, right? You're an actual knowledgeable musician, uh, which I'm not really. I can just hear that one's major and one's minor because this sounds happy and upbeat, and this sounds sad, right? And sort of just melodramatic or whatever, right? I can't even tell that's a G. Like, that's how horrible my ear is, right? But a real musician would know that's a G major and that's a G minor, and he would be able to hear that the third degree was down a half step. That's the difference between a major happy sound and a minor unhappy sound is the third degree down. So why does, why, why? Like, why is that? So when you, it's because there's different ratios between the frequencies that go into those mixtures. So there's two ratios, actually. One is the fifth. That's in common between them. Both of them have the fifth. That doesn't change. Like that, the third is what changes. So Pythagoras is the person that we believe discovered that there were numerical ratios that made different chords in different scales different from each other. And that's the only difference between them. And so that those numerical scales express themselves as different emotions. So the fact that two the emotions expressed by two different musical sounds could be completely and utterly explained by numerical ratios is so mind-blowingly unexpected. Like, I think there, it, it couldn't be more surprising if you discovered the Earth goes around the sun or that humans evolved from monkeys. Like, if you think about that, the fact that the emotions expressed by two sounds are completely numerical in nature. Like, why would you think that would... You wouldn't expect that. But that's the only difference between those two sounds. So he looked into numerical ratios. And so here, I drew some up for you right here. So look at this. He thought, and he was wrong about this, that 10... Wait. What? I can't see these. Yeah, we're going to do, we're, I'm going to, we may, this is a good episode to animate and put online, but I'm going to publish in some form the diagrams uh, that we're talking about, and then people who are following along can understand this. And this will be on my blog about the Pythagoreans, okay? 
So, and that's at adamvoigt.wordpress.com. But in the future, we'll have other cool things to say about this, and people will show it. So, what we're looking at now is the tetractus. So, when Pythagoreans would swear, instead of swearing by the gods or the river Styx, they would swear by the divine immortal tetractus. And the tetractus is this triangular-shaped thing which has four levels, which is tetra, four levels, but then it has ten numbers in it. So one is at the top, then you got two, three on the next level down, four, five, six, the third level down, seven, eight, nine, ten is the tenth level down. So if you look at it, this has three points to it, which is a perfect number, and then it also has ten units in it, which is another perfect number because the Greeks counted up to 10. Unfortunately, they thought 10 was a perfect number, which it's not. It's just an artifact of the fact that they had a base 10 system. If they had a base 12 system, they would have thought 12 was a perfect number. Anyway, but like, uh, it, even in their strong point, they were weak. You know, there's nothing natural about a base 10 system, but whatever. So... But what's interesting is this thing shows the three primary um, proportions that go into uh, harmony, musical harmony. So if you have one to two, that's an octave. So an octave is like this. Like this. An octave is like this. You have, that's the most harmonic uh, like interval that exists. So that means if you cut this string into two, like that, and then you go one octave higher, that's an octave. So this string is divided in half precisely there, right there, okay? So then that's one to two, the octave. Then if you have two to three, that's the fifth, like that. So then, this one is exactly two-thirds the length of the first one. See, that's two-thirds. And then, three-quarters is the fourth. So that's three, and this is one-quarter, and this is four-quarters. So those are the three primary portions that go into musical harmony, right? So, and this is, they are one to two, two to three, and three to four. So there's three on this line, four on that line. And then if you add them all together, there's like, and they would interpret these as all kinds of whack. This is where numerology comes from, okay? So they would swear on this, and they thought that the, all the secrets of the universe were encoded in the Tetractus. So, and they would study this sort of thing all the time, and they would like add up, okay, this adds up to one, this all adds up to one, two, three, that's three, six, and ten, and then, you know, it's like a bunch of other things. Uh, but like, anyway, then they came up with, in every sort of thing that exists, what's the limited and what's the unlimited? There's odd, even, one, many, 
right, left, male, female, rest, motion, straight, crooked, light, dark, good, bad, square, oblong, all kinds of things. And Aristotle makes fun of this. And they also thought that there had to be a tenth planet, which was directly opposite the sun. And it was, ca and it was called the anti-Earth or the counter-Earth. So that is because there's, it had to be ten. And of course, it's kind of dorky that they would consider mathematics their strong point and yet not really even understand the essence of math, which has nothing to do with ten. It's like I, ten is like so not the essence of math. Okay. So that's that. Now, do you have any questions about what we've heard thus far? It's all pretty big, isn't it? I thought they didn't like think that planets were. Like everything was floating. When was this? This oh, this is yeah. This is after we realized that uh, uh, planets were revolving uh, in space. You know, and they're no longer flat earthers, if that's what you're asking. Okay. Yeah. So, and actually, what's interesting is that Pythagoras or Pythagoreans. So Aristotle doesn't even believe that Pythagoras was a real person. He thinks he was a legendary person invented, you know, by the Pythagoreans, right? So he never refers to Pythagoras. He always just says the Pythagoreans. But nowadays, we actually think that Pythagoras was a real person. So, but in Aristotle's day, you could easily think that nobody could actually be that divinely wise and perfect, you know? <laughs> so, anyway, but what was I going to say? The... Uh, the, uh, they actually suggested that the, um, the sun was the center of the universe. They were the first pre people to suggest that. But their reasoning for doing so was completely different from how we did it in the modern era. Because they, they thought the f that fire should be in the middle as opposed to earth. Mm -hmm. And that it didn't make sense to have the whole universe oriented around a piece of dirt. Whereas, you know, if it all went around, a, you know, a central fire, then that would make a lot more sense, you know. Mm -hmm. And if fire is the RK, then the RK should be that which uh, gives order to everything else. And it should be in the middle, you know. And the Earth should go around it. That just makes more sense to them. But notice how different that is from the modern era. But Kepler was influenced by the Pythagoreans in researching uh, uh, heliocentrism. So people in the modern era were inspired by Pythagoras, but they investigated in radically different ways that Pythagoras uh, can't be credited with, but except for just by inspiring it, you know. And uh, so anyway, so that's pretty interesting. But there's a new thing. The cool thing, the coolest thing that comes out of Pythagoras is the concept of substance. Mm -hmm. So, you remember what we said about substance before? I'm curious if you remember it. If you don't remember it, that's a... What is substance? Um, I think substance is like some type of matter or something. Oh, that's, a, that's the way it is in a normal uh, speech today. Well, but, yeah. But when we're talking in Aristotle, it means what's really real. Okay, so I'm going to read this cool thing from Aristotle. And this is the 
the conclusion of this section. So here we go. From what has been said then, this is Aristotle speaking, and from the wise men who have now sat in council with us, we have got thus much. On the one hand, from the earliest philosophers who regard the first principle as corporeal, and first principle means the arche, for water and fire and other such things are bodies, and of whom some suppose that there is one corporeal principle, others that there is more than one, but both put these under the head of matter. And on the other hand, from some who posit both this cause and besides this the source of movement, as the agent cause, which we have got from some as single and others as twofold. Down to the Italian school, then, and apart from it, philosophers have treated these subjects rather obscurely, except that, as we said, they have in fact used two kinds of cause, and one of these, the source of movement, some treat as one and others as two. But the Pythagoreans have said in the same way that there are two principles, but added this much, which is peculiar to them, that they thought that finitude and infinity were not attributes of certain other things, for example, fire or earth or anything of this kind, but that infinity itself and unity itself were the substance of the things of which they are predicated. This is why number was the substance of all things. On this subject, then, they expressed themselves thus, and regarding the question of essence, they began to make statements and definitions but treated the matter too simply. For they both defined superficially and thought that the first subject of a given definition was predicable was the substance of the things defined. As if one, okay, I'm going to leave it off there. But the coolest statement was that infinity itself and unity itself were the substance of the things that are of which they are predicated. So that means... That goes back to, that's hard to imagine what that means. But if you go back to what Anaximander said, and he said there's this unlimited stuff. And in order to make anything, you have to have what's unlimited. And then you limit it. Right? So the infinity is the unlimited. You got, keep in mind that unlimited and infinite are the same word in Greek. And they actually literally mean the same thing. You know, uh, in English, too. So when he says infinity, he's talking about the unlimited itself. But then the opposite of unlimited is the limited. But when you limit something, you give unity to a part of the unlimited. So the unlimited has no unity. It's just like this blob or like open space or, you know, water or whatever doesn't have any inherent unity of its own. You can't describe it because that gives us limitations. Yeah, it's true. It's like, now, if you were to walk up to the ocean, well, the ocean actually is contained in a hollow in the earth that gives it its unity, right? But apart from that, it wouldn't have any unity. If the earth disappeared, then all that water vapor would just evaporate into space, you know, uh, unless it froze, in which case then it would be a unified hunk of ice, right? But like, uh, if you had just uh, open, like, body of water, and then you scooped a cup out of it, then that cup would give it unity. 
but it wouldn't have the unity of its own self. You know? So that's so it doesn't have any substance. The substance of a thing should be something that's in the thing itself, right? Whereas if you scoop a cup of water out of it, the substance of that cup of water is sort of imposed on it by the cup, right? Now, let's say that instead of having a big ocean, you had something like the amoebic sea on Darwin IV, right? Now, do you think the amoebic sea was one big blob that's alive, no. one organism, or was it a lot of organisms? I think it was like a lot of little, like, you know, living things that kind of work together to make this giant terrible. Yeah, that's true. Well, that's how I interpret it. It could just be one big thing. So, <clears throat> so to the audience who's listening, there's this cool documentary on YouTube called Alien Planet. And on this documentary, they send these robots to this fictional planet. And it's called Darwin 4. And there's no bodies of water other than puddles on this planet, except for this one <clears throat> ocean or sea called the Amoebic Sea, and it just seems like this sea is just like a blob that can eat things that fly over it and come near it. And you can't tell if it's one thing or many things. Like, it just doesn't fit into our concept of an organism, right? But, uh, so that, it could be just one thing, but if it were just one big blob, then it would have its own unity, right? You know, if parts of it were... Uh, dedicated and structured so that it helped out other parts. So like our bodies, right? Our bodies are a unity and they're limited. Like the food that we take in from outside, like when you drink water, that water, as we said earlier, has no inherent unity. Its unity is imposed on it by the cup. Then you drink it and then it becomes part of you. And then it has inherent unity because it's part of you. And you have inherent unity. Mm -hmm. You know, every part of your body wouldn't even exist without the other. Like, the fact that I have a left hand is intimately connected with the fact that I have a right hand. Like, my left hand doesn't even know that my right hand exists. But yet, they wouldn't exist without each other. So there's this unity to my body. Oh. What? I mean, you could have one hand. Yeah, that's true, but but like we that's against nature. Humans evolved to have two hands, and the fact that I exist is dependent on a massive number of population of creatures like me who have two hands. You know what I'm saying? So even if a person is born with only one hand, by nature they have two hands. And it's something you can't take away from a human being. Even if nature's uh, uh, frustrated in certain aspects, you still are a human being. And you still, by nature, have two hands. And, you know, it's, it's like if you raise a child and they don't, you don't teach them a language. Well, that's against nature, but they are by nature a speaking animal. You know, that's mm -hmm. what humans are. And you can't change that by 
frustrating nature. So there's a certain unity to this entire body that we have that makes it a whole thing and makes it one thing. So this is where the limited and unity come about. And if you look at the list of correspondences, the limited has one as in its column. So when you make something one thing, you limit it. And this is the substance of that thing, is how it's limited, how it's one thing. And so this is the most important thing that comes out of Pythagoras, is distinguishing the fact that there's matter, which is just sitting around, doing nothing, or maybe just sloshing around, or just, you know, you know, randomly floating in space or just collected in the gravity well of some planet or something like that. The difference between matter being a principle of things and then that matter being unified into particular sorts of things like humans or stars or cells or plants or fish or something like that. That's something which is different and more interesting. Right. And Pythagoras thought that whatever it was that unified things had something to do with number. Had something to do with number. And one thing that uh, made them think this is the golden proportion. Have you ever heard of the golden proportion? All right. Well, the golden proportion is a uh, it's a principle of art that was discovered in ancient Greece. Or maybe it was discovered in Egypt. I'm not sure. The what? No, no. Okay. So one thing is that uh, uh, if you look at, say, the Parthenon, the <clears throat> there's the proportion between the length of the front and then the length of the sides. That proportion is the golden proportion, and it's also the proportion between a person's height and the height of their belly button. So, and then it's also the proportion of like the height of your head and then the distance to the point directly between your eyes or something like that. Like it's, there's a whole bunch of ways in which the golden proportion manifests itself in the human form as well as in like the spirals of the seeds on a uh, sunflower and a nautilus shell and various things. So the golden proportion is basically where the proportion of this to this. So the proportion of this to this is the same as this to this. Right. So this has a certain proportion and it's I, I don't even know if it's a rational number, but it's some weird number. It's called phi, one to phi, if you look it up. And so that's the golden proportion. So if you have a proportion where this to this is the same as this to this. Right. Then that's the golden proportion. And so the part to the the two parts are the same as the larger the parts to the whole. Mm -hmm. And so that is 
it, that just saying the definition of the golden proportion shows that the parts have a certain unity that's lacking in other proportions. And what's really weird is this doesn't express itself in music, but uh, I don't know what Pythagoras would say. Or maybe it does, I don't know. But it was a big thing in architecture. All the statues and all the buildings of ancient Greece had to express that, not only in their frontal... So the, the rectangle that defines the front of the Parthenon had the golden proportion in it. And then when you look down at it from above, that was the golden proportion. Everything was the golden proportion. And uh, they thought that it was perfect. And it just so happens that good-looking human faces are closer to the golden proportion in various measurements and their body uh, proportions as well. So I don't know why. I assume there's some natural people have looked into this. It's not some mystical thing uh, uh, that has only a magical uh, explanation. And there are many things in nature that don't use the golden proportion. But uh, the, uh, what was it? But that, to, to them, to the Greeks, that was the substance of things. Oh, wait, why did I bring up the golden proportion? <laughs> The, the unity of the substance of things. So it's, the, it's the, the unity of the thing is the way that it's limited such that each of the parts of that limitation has an inherent reference to other parts and is, forms a unity that's good, right? And that's perfect as a whole. And so this is something that Aristotle will really focus on. And he looks into like living creatures and sees how a living creature's body has a unity and a symmetry that is just not just beautiful to look at, but when you, you know, apart from its function, but then when you look at how the different parts function properly, it gets more and more beautiful when you understand its function. And then even the parts that don't look like they function, that look like they're badly designed, when you really understand them, then it gets even more beautiful. You know, because then you understand that there's a, an expression of the wisdom of the universe that's beyond what you would just randomly expect. And uh, the Pythagoreans didn't really look into living creatures very much. Uh, except for in terms of how they seem to be geometrically designed, right? You know, they, but like Aristotle will really focus on the structure and function of living creatures. And he thinks that that is true substance. A living creature is more substantial than just a bunch of stuff sitting around, you know? And uh, it's more substantial than musical ratios or how it, a beautiful... Uh, you know, a beautiful building is proportioned, right? He thinks that living creatures are, are equal with the solar system and the planets and the stars in terms of how perfect they are. So he wants to include the structure of living creatures into the thinking of what substance is and what's really real. And that's what substance means. It's what's really real. And that's why I think the Pythagoreans are so important is because they are the first people to bring up 
this concept that substance is not the matter, but the form, the unity, and the functionality of that which has matter. So. Anyway, does that make sense? I, that's a, I think that's an important concept, but I don't know if it ha makes sense to you or not. So I think it does. You do? Yeah. So, like the uh, this is what Aristotle will call the soul, and Aristotle doesn't believe the soul can exist apart from matter. Wait, the soul is like the form of your brain or something? It's the form of your brain. It's the form of your body. It's the form of, and it's not just the external visible form, but the form of your behavior, how you're programmed, how your brain's programmed, how each cell is programmed to create these proteins at this time, you know, and uh, all the functionality, the pre-programmed functionality of your body and your species at every level. How it all interlocks is, uh, that's soul. And so individual human souls are the way they are from the get-go because there are other souls that they are designed to connect with. And these souls are in turn designed to connect with you in such a way that you create a functional society. So that is... Uh, this is the important thing, and actually substance is going to be the key concept going forward in this whole book. And other people are going to be clueless. So like the, the, the key thing that's wrong with Pythagoras, can you think of something that's wrong with Pythagoras? I'm going to quiz you on this, but, you know, I... I really don't think that numbers somehow exist inside of something. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't either. You measure something. You can, like, you know, anything that, like, you're measuring a certain way of math. I don't know, way of math. Whatever. Um, like, you can do that, but I don't think that... I think the numbers are in your mind, not in the object. Yeah, that uh, could be true. But, like, if it's just in your mind... I Actually, you know, I, I have to confess, I do believe, I do think that. I think that numbers are primarily in your mind, right? And that we define them to be eternally thus and so, mm -hmm. you know? So we define the eternal truths to be eternal. And uh, although that's not the end of the discussion, you know, I, I may be wrong. But the thing is uh, that and I think in hindsight, in the modern era, we are justified in 
saying that. But in Aristotle's day, that's that wasn't obvious yet. You know, it, for Aristotle, it was much more difficult. And so the way he criticized them, given his perspective at that time, was he said that they were lacking in the efficient cause. So he thinks that they had a, a material cause, which is the unlimited. And then he thinks they had a formal cause, which was numerical ratios and proportions, right? And then they had like a final cause, which was everything's best nature was to express mathematical beauty or something, right? That's at least a purpose. It may not be the actual purpose of things, but at least they had something like a final cause, right? That's the purpose of things. What they didn't have was the efficient cause, the agent cause. So what causes numbers to express themselves in matter? Do the numbers do it? Like, or do we do it? Oh, the uh, agent. Yeah, well, who's the agent cause? Like he says, numbers are these eternal things floating in space, right? If they are in, in the mind of God or something like that, well, then what causes them to... That, well, there has to be some God, or there has to be someone who takes the numbers and then puts them into action. So, because the, the numbers can't do it. So that's Aristotle's criticism. Is that, that are already put into action? Yeah, so there has to be something else that's not a number. There was like something. Yeah, that exists before numbers, right? Or is equally, you know, existent with numbers. That then takes the numbers and makes them into actual things. So if you just had numbers, you would never get to things that exist apart from numbers, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you know, you could have a Pythagorean physics as long as you had something else besides numbers, right, that would just do go through all this and go through all the trouble to be all symmetrical and beautiful, right? There has to be something else. So, and the Pythagoreans don't have anything, you know, in their philosophy that can do this, right? And Aristotle wants to do it. He wants to have, Aristotle has his own philosophy of what numbers are, and it's very similar to what we have nowadays, I think, uh, and what I believe in. Um, but like, uh, he, uh, and he thinks that numbers are not the substance of things, but they're, they're, they're somewhat closely related to the substance. I mean, there's something to the Pythagorean thing, but they're, no, the numbers aren't the ultimate things that they're talking about, and they're not eternal. They're like they're like secondary things. That living creatures make up numbers basically, and and come up with numbers for purposes that the living creatures know and that are essential to the living creatures, right? And that's real reality. If if living creatures exist before numbers, and then living creatures make up the numbers for purposes that are part of being a living creature, well then, that means that living creatures are more substance than the numbers are. And the true substance of things cannot... Well, before there were living things, they were already numbers. Nobody had like just discovered them, I guess. Yeah. Well, that's what a Platonist would say. 
And Platonists, uh, actually, we'll go, that's mathematical Platonism says that numbers preexisted any minds by, you know, forever. And, um, like you could go around and count a bunch of stuff, but there was like no person to do that. Yeah, so well, nobody did it. Well, you you could say that one way in which you could say that is that if I mean you could, it, you don't even have to uh, limit yourself to math in order to say that. You could say that flight existed before living creatures evolved to fly. Right. Because even before living creatures evolved to fly, it was already possible to fly. But yet no one had actually flown yet. And in order to fly, you would have to have an even number of wings. You couldn't have an one wing. Right. You could either have two wings or four wings. And so just the very nature of flight constrains you to only fly in certain ways, just like the nature of numbers constrains you to count in only certain ways. You can count using a base 10 system, a base 12 system, a base 20 system, or a base 2 system. You know, you can do numbers any way you want, but well, not any way you want, but like you're limited to counting in certain ways. And that's because if you count it in some other way besides that, then it wouldn't be useful to a living creature. You know, you'd be wasting energy. Mm -hmm. And you'd have evolved an entire module in your nervous system for nothing. <laughs> and you're likely to go extinct. So that's the way in which we might say that math pre-existed. But it was a potential it existed in potentiality, but not in actuality. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't like existing in the mind of God. Like in the mind of some creator person. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. But like, uh, but back in Aristotle's day, almost everybody believed that math and ideas were more substance than actual real things like real things in terms of like organisms like you and me right aristotle is going to argue against everyone else he's going to argue that actual organisms are more real than matter than atoms floating in space and they're more real than numbers or ideas he's going to cut right between the two and say that organisms are the real things and that matter is just a potential organism and that numbers are just things you can potentially think with your mind. But the real things are organisms. And uh, so, anyway. Uh, but I, in our next, uh, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, kind of, yes. Okay, well, good. It makes sense. I don't understand Okay, but, uh, well, why you would think that organisms were more real than just yeah. matter? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a difficult thing to uh, understand. And he gets into that in Book Zeta, I think. Uh, that becomes, and so right now we're in Book Alpha. So Book Zeta is after Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, uh, Heta, and then Zeta. 
and we're going to skip about one third of those books. So we have a ways to go. Mm. But uh, Zeta is probably my favorite book. It's really cool. And that's where you really get into the definition of what a living creature is and and how things fit together to make a real thing. Um, and uh, I don't know. But uh, we have a ways to go. But the uh, that's that's right now what Aristotle is going. Oh, he's trying to go away from pure materialist to uh, and away from idealist. People who are obsessed with ideas and people who just think about matter and not about how matter fits together to make cool things that are awesome. So anyway, there you have it. But. You know, it makes sense you would have doubts about that now. But uh, anyway, I hope I can remove those doubts in the future, or maybe I can be proven wrong, or Aristotle can be proven wrong. But our next thing is going to be about the next generation of idealists, which is Plato. And Plato was the teacher of Aristotle, and he was, like, so important. And it's so... He took Pythagoreanism and moved it even more into the world of ideas. And so many people in the modern world are, well, in the ancient world and the medieval world were Platonists. But even in the modern world, there's a lot of Platonists. Many mathematicians just think that numbers exist in the same way that Plato thought. And so it's interesting to think about what that is and uh, why Platonism is so strong to so many people. And mo much of what Aristotle is arguing is arguing against Plato and the Pythagoreans, and not just the materialists. So, anyway, we'll do that next time, and I hope uh, our listeners will come back for that, because Plato is pretty intense. All right, thanks for joining us, and bye-bye. Uh,